Yeah, baby. Welcome to Every Month Madness, the show that knows any month is a great month to take the burning questions of pop culture and pit them against each other in a winner-take-all, battle royale, NCAA-style bracket. Tonight, they may have never been on the charts, but they were the top of your heart. We look at 90s no-hit wonders with Chris and Curtis and Ed Clark. Let's tip it off, baby! Who is the better band, No Hit Wonder of the 80s? A band we have not even spoken of yet because they got a first round by Fish with a PH against Silverchair. I don't remember which one of you goes first, but this is a doozy. All right. I will go first. Um, I uh, It pains me to say this, but I have to vote for Fish over Silverchair. So I will go ahead and give you my spiel on why I think Silverchair is so freaking phenomenal. They uh, did come on the they scene. They really in developed their own sound. When Daniel Johns and by the was time 16, Young Modern was released, um, there Tomorrow is a song was such on a that gritty, like angry song. And then they didn't really have any hits on Freak Show. And then it was Neon Ball, which record. we touched on a little bit. I still later, have not heard anything. Or a little left. bit earlier, I should say, that had Anna's song and Anthem for the Year 2000. Um, like and I imitating- think for most people, that's where their relationship with Silverchair ended. But I kept mine up. And I have to say that I cannot think of any other band where every time they released an album, it was actually better than the one that came before it. And Diorama was like, oh my God, how is this the same band that did this like grungy music that was like almost like an homage to Nirvana, right? In 1995, because they were kids just kind of like imitating what they loved. They really developed their own sound. And by the time Young Modern was released, there is a song on that record. I still have not heard anything like it. It's track five. It's called Those Thieving Birds Part One, Strange Behavior, Those Thieving Birds Part Two. And it is like, it's a sonic adventure. The orchestration they ended up putting on these songs. I mean, I was just increasingly blown away by their output. And I'm so glad that I got to see Silverchair on the Young Modern Tour uh, and hear that song live because I was devastated when they said they were going on hiatus after that. They had like set me up to think that they were just gonna keep getting better with every album. And then, and now it's been 14 years, I guess. Has it been 14 years? Oh my God, it's been 14 years. That's not fair. (laughs) That's a great homage, Kristen. And you're right, it's also not fair at all. Yeah, but that's funny. I don't know any of this. I, I definitely, I'm that person you're describing that my my awareness of Silverchair kind of had a steep fall off there. So that's that's cool. But ultimately, Kristen, you're voting for Fish, right? I'm voting for Fish. I'm just talking about before we lose the opportunity, why I think Silverchair was okay. underrated and amazing. So I, I confessed to Joe on one of my crankier days that I almost called Sirius Satellite Radio to complain that there was a Fish channel next to a Dave Matthews band channel. And I was like, hasn't the world suffered enough? <laughs> And I'm going, you know, I was like, it's my two least favorite thing, or Dave Matthews Band is that, it's that early 90s, Orpa Thurpa singing with jam band aesthetics. I'm going to show my bias here, anybody but Fish, so I'm going to go with Silverchair. I, I, I told Joe I was raised on two things, punk rock and country music. I cannot abide a jam band. I'm going to have to go with Silverchair. <laughs> Okay, so this is only the second time I've gotten to break a tie between you two. So you guys have definitely been vibing. But I am going to strangely agree with Kristen because I think Kristen did it with a heavy heart. But I'm I'm going with Fish. And frankly, Ed, I think comparing Fish to Dave Matthews Band is not fair. We'll get to that later. Um, and Kristen, I definitely have some Silverchair records to listen to. So Yes, you do. But Fish is moving on. And Fish is moving on to face in the final four either 
Bad Religion, who beat Marilyn Manson, or Primus, who beat Bell and Sebastian to get here. Ed, Primus, Bad Religion. I, I guess I sort of see Primus as being more 90s-like. It's, it's paining me because I think Bad Religion, when they got to, what was that record, uh, Recipe for Hate, they were... I think build is slightly grungy. I think more flannel kind of came out and like they were. Well, they got major label, right? Yeah, they, they got Atlantic. major label at a time when major label meant you got to We got to pass you off as grunge. Primus is like the band that the kid with a better sense of humor that normally would like tool would like. And that seems like a <laughs> normal sentence. I'm better sense of humor tool is a concept I like a lot. <laughs> I, tool but you know yeah i mean the, the name's yeah. a joke but i don't I'm not sure the fans understand that um <laughs> Primus? Yeah. all right chris oh i'm you're gonna have another tiebreaker here i've got to go with bad religion i mean i understand what we're saying about how like primus feels more like the 90s band for sure bad religion they feel like an 80s band to me they really ushered in as we were talking about like that revival of punk in the 90s and there are so many other bands that they made space for like like green day in particular i don't know that like once that got to the 2000s that i appreciated it so much when it was like good charlotte that we were talking about anymore but i don't know between uh the, one of the members of the band brett uh gruitz owning epitaph i mean i just think that bad religion has slightly more cred here than primus even though primus wrote the theme song for south park let us not forget yeah. Oh, yeah. Found, that's how I discovered Tom Waits. Ooh. Because I was like, who is this? And of course, we were living at a time where you couldn't look crap up. Right. So, like, I remember asking older kids who the guy in Tommy the Cat was. And man, did that make my life better. And Primus kind of gifted me that. And I thank them to this day. Can I tie break by asking a question? Yes. Okay. Okay. Bad Religion gets Recipe for Hate is the is the shakedown street of their career, right? Because they are literally um, like my great, I know you hate Jam Band Dead, but my Grateful Dead record reference is like, you know, that's when the dead gets very like Saturday Night Feverish, right? Recipe for Hate is a grunt, is they, that tries to be, is them writing a grunge record or being inspired to write a grunge record. It's also their first major label record. That's, I'm going to be honest with you. That's when I, I, I found them. That's, like I remember they were on all they were on two or three warp tours or maybe just the one that I went to two or three times. I don't know, but I saw Bad Religion a lot on Warp Tour. I, I thought they were cool. I listened to a bunch of their albums. But it was like a time when if Kurt Cobain thought your band was cool, a major label chased you. Should they have resisted that? And is it fair to to down them for that? Also, how do you get over the like just the declarative nature of the lyrics? Like when I go back to Bad Religion, there's so much that's so explicitly, I mean, declarative is the only adjective I can come up with for it. But I feel like punk has sort of found other ways to get its point across. Is Bad Religion just too on the nose? Go ahead. Tell me, tell me why I'm wrong. I think a lot of people are dense and sometimes you got to be that blunt with what you're saying, if I'm being honest, <laughs> like some people need it in their face. Um... <laughs> <laughs> you deserve this bad religion. 
I mean, like people who don't understand when you like put it in more like poetic lyrics, like people are not getting the message sometimes. So like good on bad religion for being like, nope, this is what we're saying and you're going to follow is. it. It's like a pie in the face. So that's true though. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think we've already kind of touched on this as well, talking about being really proud of being slackery and like dirty in the nineties. There is something that holds hands with poo-pooing major labels and not wanting to be signed to them. But I just can't fault a band for wanting to reach their full potential and have the widest reach that they can. So like, I'm not gonna hold that against Bad Religion. I'm gonna hold it against them. They've got too much baggage from their punk rock roots. You've got what, I'm forgetting his name, the one guitar player is from the Circle Jerks. You've got a guitar player from Minor Threat who a lot of people forget was literally in a hair metal band. I think they're called Junkyard. So he, you know, even though he was in Bag Nasty, he's in this like hair metal band. I'm gonna give you more reason to go with Primus. Bad Religion misses the mark of the 90s punk rock thing because they're too on the nose. Compare that with like Green Day, you know, Billy Joe was singing about marijuana and masturbation. And you've got Greg Graffin, who's like a PhD, ranting about the system or religion, you know, I, I think that the 90s went and went to a more personal place in songwriting. And that highly like political thing is way more 70s. To me, it shows their old age and their baggage. And the hmm. fact that they signed to a major label would be further evidence that they couldn't read the room. <laughs> well, I know, but tell that's a rage against the machine though, Ed. You know, I mean, they literally could were nowhere near this list because they they had hits. Yeah, and that's why I don't really think they're a punk band. But hey, that, that, that's my two cents. That's that's angry right. me coming out here. That's fair. No, those that's very good points. Well taken and made. Aren't, <laughs> like when you look back at the 90s, especially when trying to put together playlists that are relevant for some of the things that we are facing in our current times, and you can go back to the 60s and 70s and find so much that still feels relevant today. Don't the 90s get poo-pooed on for like checking out of the responsibility of using your art and your platform for making points and raising awareness of issues that we're going through. And I just feel like there were so few bands that were actually doing that. And as much as I appreciate the confessional style of songwriting, um, I think there's something to be said for a band that's stuck to their guns. It's a really good point. And, and, you know, you're being kind and not pointing out that Primus is a prime example of that, right? Because they wrote about, what did they write about really? <laughs> yeah. Just weirdness, you know, they were like Captain Beefheart. All that said though, I, I just think Primus, Primus is so Primus in a way that, you know, uh, very few of these other bands can claim originality. They just sound so different. And that sound is very of this time we're talking about. I, I still want to put them on a lot more than I would. And I don't really listen to Primus that much. I don't know if anybody does, but man, I did <laughs> at one point. So I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to give it to Primus. Cool. Uh, we're going to move them on to face. We have our final four friends. It's close. Four bands remain. Primus goes up against a, a, a band that frankly is waltzed here to this point because we haven't even talked about them. And that's Fish. The final round on this side of the bracket, Primus versus Fish. Ed, I think you're first. Can I just plead the fifth? Because you know I'm going to vote against Fish on principle. I've been to Burlington, Vermont. You know, it's an, it's it's a place untouched by time and genre. It's just lots of Birkenstocks and hippies. All right. So we need a reason why you hate fish so much besides the fact that you hate jam bands. Uh, I had a friend in high school that was really into them and uh, he was like a big surfer and you know, he would come over and he'd be like, Oh dude, this is their Halloween show from 98. They played the white album in its entirety. 
And I was like, great. Or we could listen to the White Album. Uh, the uh, the drummer I find annoying. Um, just, you know, again, I had these formative conversations. Like, I don't know if you're going to edit it out of the show, but I told you that my cousin was my hero. He had a wallet chain and pink hair, and he liked Dinosaur Jr. and Pantera. Fish is the antithesis of that. You know, this is the same cousin that told me that when the dead came to town, you know, they stole laughing gas to sell to hippies. Like they, they were the butt of the joke. Again, I'm gonna go back to my argument of reading the room. Like I, I, I know that the jam band thing and the reverence for the 60s had a moment in the night. 15 year old me will not allow me to vote for fish for anything on principle. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick to my guns like bad religion did. And I'm gonna go against fish. All right, Ed. At Kristen, Ed wants Primus in the finals. Tell him why I, he's wrong. I, first of all, I have to say that as a DJ, one skill you have to develop is being objective about music that you listen to. So I will fully admit here that I am also very anti-jam band. I do not like it when I walk into a song in the middle of a concert and I can't tell what song it is because it sounds like they're just practicing in their garage. Like, no, thank you. Um, I agree with you, Ed, in that regard. <laughs> It's very bothersome. That being said, I just can't vote against a band that is so fun and brings so many people so much joy. And Tran Anastasio wears Flyers jerseys on stage when he performs in Philadelphia. And also, I just think that any of my listeners would decapitate me if they found out that I voted against Fish. Uh, so <laughs> I just, they're legendary. I don't know. I Billy Breathe, even when you start to get into some of the early 2000s, I know it's kind of like out of what we're talking about right now, but that farmhouse record, like Waiting All Night, oh, it's such a Oh, heavy that thing. record. It's so oh, good. Um, that record, that song, oh my goodness. I think, actually, I think that's not on that record. Heavy Things is on um, is on Farmhouse, which is a great song. Um, yeah. yeah, they do. I think that they have like these moments in the studio where you're like, oh, this is a jam. And I don't mean like a jam band. Like this song is like, this is a bop. I gotta, I gotta go with Fish. Uh, the song Farmhouse and uh, Waiting in the Velvet Sea, which these are none of these are 90s songs. So it's probably not fair. But yeah, I, I think you make a lot of great points. And Ed, I, I, I hear you. It's funny because I don't I don't really I don't like jam bands either, but I really like fish. They're strong. The, the, the fish vibe is strong over at XPN. Oh, my God. It's to the point that like we play a lot of stuff that you won't hear anywhere else. Right. But if I play a fish song, which should make you happy in general, people will. And they do the same thing with the Grateful Dead. They'll be like, you should have played the live version off of this <laughs> concert that was recorded. I'm like, oh, my God, just be happy that you heard a fish song. OK, right, um, right, right. Very large, dedicated following. Of right. Fish. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to agree with you and I'm going to move fish, which I, I feel so dirty about it because I feel like they didn't earn this, but I'm going to push fish to the <laughs> finals as well, even though Ed is definitely going to flip a table. I've been called a hoist head. Are you familiar with this, Kristen? No. Okay. So a hoist head in the fish lexicon is someone who likes their more, their shorter, more like radio friendly songs. It's sort of like uh, you're too, you're not cool enough. You don't like, you're not a deep cut fish guy. But the reason why I've accepted that criticism and and embraced it is because I think you could pull fish out of that mentality and their records are still really strong and their records are still filled with really great songs. Hunta, Hoist, 
Billy Breathes all have great songs on them. And even if they didn't, and a lot of them, you know, there's a lot of their studio albums don't really digress musically into the jams. You know, that's their that's what they're known for live. There are some that are longer even on the studio albums, but for the most part, I think they're just really tight, really well-written songs. I think they themselves are great musicians and they are so fun to be around. I mean, it's going to a fish show is such a different experience and I, I'm willing to take on the criticism because I really do, I do love just listening to them. I think they, Look, they write great songs. Joe, I'm just mad at myself that I voted for Primus over Bad Religion. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. You could have had some- tonight. Hey, that's going to eat at my soul. Ed, this is why we play the game, okay? This is why we do it. We're doing important work here. Fish is in the finals of 90s No Hit Wonders to no one's surprise. Are they going to face the Wu-Tang Clan or Slater Kenny? Kristen, you're up. Uh, all right. At this point, I think I finally have to go with Wu-Tang Clan over Slater Kenny. I just, yeah, like as much as I am all about the girl power of Slater Kenny, I feel like Wu-Tang Clan has a bigger footprint. They had a bigger cultural impact. Um, they're more relevant. Yeah, that's a very, very difficult decision, but I, I think I'm going to have to go with Wu-Tang Clan. Ed? Same. It's. I think it's just, if you grab the average person off the street that, rem, you know, remembered the 90s, they're going to know the Wu-Tang Clan. They're probably not going to know Slater Kenny. And even if you look at the larger, like, kind of branding thing, my God, they've done so many other things. Like, members of the Wu-Tang Clan are movie stars. Yeah, movie stars, right. Amazon did a six-hour documentary on them. They did, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a dramatization of their story. So, like, it's so monolithic that, yeah, I think it's the only choice. And I feel like we've 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 done Slater Kenny its due, right? You guys don't feel like we need to. Is there something we need to do? We need to cover their departure from the tournament. I think we've I think we've said what we needs to be said, it. right? Yeah, we've yeah. covered it. So Wu Tang goes to the finals against Fish in just the most bananas final matchup of all time. I cannot wait. But first, before my guest hosts discuss which of these bands is the greatest '90s no hit wonder, I would like you first to tell me where we can find you guys online. Ed Clark, tell us about where we find Ed Clark's music. Oh, geez. Now now, now you're embarrassing me. I'm going to uh, make you do it. I'm going to put it in the show notes. So either way, you might as well. Oh, I've been recording songs. Uh, it's njampersand.bandcamp.com. Just look in the show notes. We'll have a link to Ed. Ed, tell us a little bit about this particular album that you're, that you're promoting here. Uh, I, it, was an, it was an exercise for the past three summers. I've just recorded a couple of songs, mostly because um, I played a lot of music when I was a teenager and now all my friends are in their mid thirties and I wanted to play in bands with my friends, but I got impatient. So I just did everything myself. It's awesome. It's good stuff. And it'll be there for you to click on Ed's work. Anything else listeners need to know about? Me? Uh, no, I'm staying off the internet, man. It's toxic. Kristen Curtis, you have a job and a way about you that you probably often encounter people who feel like they know you though they know you not at all <laughs> right? that's accurate although that's kind of my goal you know um when I was studying radio in college they gave us a tip that I've never been told again throughout any of my actual professional career which is to imagine that you're talking to one person like you should never say phrases like hey out there or like you guys I found the song like no never if people are in a group and they're listening to the radio, 
you don't have their full attention. The only time you have somebody's complete and undivided attention is when they're alone. So you should always just pretend that you're talking to one person. And um, I get that a lot that people feel like I'm just having a conversation with them. And that I'm like, I'm like, that's my goal. That's like the highest compliment that you can give me is that you feel like you know me and that we're friends and we talk about music every day. That's the best. Yeah, it really does. You, you are so good. You, you really are amazing. I'm a big fan of your work. Um, and you, you know, what's amazing about that little piece of advice, Kristen, is that's the exact opposite of what every YouTuber does. Have you noticed that? Because everything on YouTube is like, Hey guys, it's me. And I'm just going to drink this Sprite for you. you know I, mean? <laughs> I hadn't noticed that, I guess. Cause I, I don't really understand like when I'm doing prep for the show and I go to famousbirthdays.com just to check who I have to celebrate every week. I'm like, who the hell are these people? It's all like YouTube stars. YouTubers. Got into yeah. That. yeah. But it's funny because because the YouTube game is such like a numbers driven game, right? Like everybody wants to seem like they have followers. So everything's like, hey, what's up guys? It's, you know, like there really is this like, I think the YouTube school is like, pretend you're talking to the masses. So it's great to hear you say the exact opposite is what you've tried to do because I think it really works. Um, I've definitely had conversations in my head with you <laughs> while you're talking to the radio on my way to work. And there are times, Kristen, when you've changed the entire outlook of my day very often I will tweet you when that happens. So you probably know. Yeah, it's really, I'm really grateful for you because sometimes XPN is the difference between like, God, this day is the worst. And you know what? This day is not so bad. So I appreciate that. Oh, Joe, thank you so much for your kindness and your support of the station. You know, it often feels like we're operating in a vacuum and like, it's funny because sometimes like I won't be in a great mood, but I've got a performing for folks and I'm trying to pick songs that are upbeat. And then it's just the days that like I'm feeling down and then I get a message from someone along the lines of the very kind words that you just shared. It turns my day around as well. So it really is this community, very intimate kind of place where we can all like uplift each other and, and uplift musicians. It really, that just makes my day. So thank you, Joe. And thanks oh, for inviting that... me. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, this has been, this really has been a blast. So tell our listeners where they can find you and tell us about what you got going on. I am on 88.5 WXPN in Philadelphia from 6 to 10 a.m. every Monday through Friday. We also stream on a free app and at xpn.org. I, like Ed, have also recently decided that social media is very toxic. Uh, so I am on Twitter. You can find me at Kristen Curtis. That's K-R-I-S-T-E-N-K-U-R-T-I-S. And then on Instagram, it's Kristen underscore Curtis. But I'm trying to spend a little less time. I don't know. I'm trying to find a new balance with social media because it's like I said before, there's, it's not all good and it's not all bad, but right now and over the last like four years or so, it has just gotten to be a tenuous place to be. Exhausting. Right. Yeah. yeah. And anything else um, off of uh, 88.5 that, that you're working on or doing that we can know about? Oh, gosh. Um, I would also love to tell you that I'm working on music, but I need someone that I feel like comfortable being vulnerable around. I sing. Maybe someday, Joe, I'll be telling you about it, an EP or an album that I've recorded as well. But for now, uh, just the radio stuff going on. Awesome. Well, we'll be looking forward to that, Kristen. All right. So here it is, you guys, the most bananas matchup of all time. I don't even know how you begin talking about this. We have Fish versus the Wu-Tang Clan. 
who is the bigger 90s no-hit wonder? I don't even know where to begin. Where do you think we begin? I think a lot of the argument has already been made for the decision that I, I, I believe that Ed and I will be on the same page here. And I believe it has to do with the argument that we just made for Wu-Tang Clan beating out Slater Kinney. There are pockets of certain music fans who will love Fish. But if you look at this country as a whole and who impacted culture more and who was more adored and who's had bigger impact and a, more of a story to tell, it's got to be Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah, do you agree with that? I do. I, I'm going to make like a random observation. And I, I obviously I've made my biases known, but like I like how this kind of naturally worked out with two groups that had massive followings that it's almost they, they built cultures, you know, and, and I and I can make fun of one, but it, that's very, very true. But I'm going to tell you one thing that that I just was thinking about that's going to give it to Wu-Tang Clan, and it's the logo. A great band logo is so important. And one of the themes that I've, you know, I've been kind of exploring throughout this is this idea of, are you just in the same waters as a band that proceeded before you? Fish has a logo. I can picture it. It's like the little fish with the bubbles, but it's not as iconic. For example, like if you, I think the Grateful Dead have the greatest band logo of all time. Like that, the, the skull, I love it. Like their iconography, like you could sell that to a teenager in a high school now like you could sell a Wu-Tang Clan shirt with the same thing. Like the logo is so iconic. When your band gets so big, part of the zeitgeist that just an image itself is there. And Wu-Tang has that. Uh, and I, I'm not sure a, a band has come along since then. And funny, another band that we talked about a lot today, Bad Religions logo with the cross. I mean, super yeah. iconic logo. The, you know, a lot of those punk bands have that. It's the fact that the cultural mark of the Wu-Tang Clan, undeniable, <laughs> world domination. It's crazy, yeah. I mean. I'm, I'm going to admit something really embarrassing to you guys. So when I was in college, when my my friend group would go out, we would often designate nights where we would where we would decide which members of the Wu-Tang Clan we were that night. I can't imagine another band that that would work for. You know Spice what I mean? Like, I did that with the Spice Girls. <laughs> no one's going out being like, I'm John Fishman tonight. No, no, I'm Trey Anastasio. You know what I mean? So yeah, I, I, I get it. Okay, so can I play devil's advocate just to push you guys? Because I, I suspected we might be here. And I'll also say this, this is the seventh episode of the show. And it's the first time that the panelists picked the number one and two seated team. So you guys agreed with the voters on this. And I think it's the first time it's happened on the show. And maybe, you know, maybe for good reason, maybe because these two kind of are standing a little bit above. I can't make a lot of arguments against Wu-Tang, but, but I tried to come up with one. All right. So, so tell me what you think about this. The nineties were an R and B dominated decade in terms of commercial success in music. I went looking because I was very surprised that Wu-Tang was the only R and B based sort of like wrapped group in the countdown in our little tournament. The reason why is, is because all of the really great rap R and B groups you can think of in the nineties had hits. In fact, 70% of the decades chart toppers were in the R and B hip hop genre. How do you account for the fact that if Wu-Tang is this zeitgeist you described, how did they never have a hit? And is it bad that I feel like I'm cheating on a tribe called Quest if I vote for Wu-Tang Clan? Did a tribe you know, Ed, Ed's laughing because Ed knows I'm, how, how devoted I am to tribe, but go ahead. Did they, were they considered they had hits? Did a tribe called Quest have hits or did they just not make it into the- No, the, a tribe called Quest scenario hit the top 100. Scenario, yeah. yeah, yeah. But nothing that Wu-Tang did ever did. I don't think that not having a hit means that someone's being overvalued. And I mean, I don't know my chart history, but I'll bring up someone that you mentioned earlier today. But Tom Waits is not 
an extremely popular artist, but he deserves all of the accolades. And if we want to keep it in the 90s realm, Ani DeFranco was not someone that you were going to hear on the radio, but is an incredibly talented artist with important things to say who has a dedicated following. I don't believe that just because you didn't end up getting onto the charts for whatever reason. And let's also keep in mind that payola was still a very big thing in the 90s. Frankly, it's still going on today. And just in case nobody knows what payola is, it's when a record label offers money to a radio station to get songs on the radio, which then influences their chart positions, right? And I recently learned that that's not something that just happened between record labels and radio stations. It's kind of like the way that you can fake having a bestseller on the New York Times now if you buy 100,000 copies of your own damn book. People used to do that with record stores as well. So like, maybe I'm just getting cynical as I get older, but I like don't really trust sales figures from before a certain time anymore or like chart positions like I'm very well aware of like stroke nine little black backpack total payola song but it was really high up on the charts so like for me how far up you got on any chart doesn't really factor into whether or not you're deserving of the reputation and the accolades that you have well said Kristen Curtis Ed I have a I have a different theory. I, I kind of told you like my background would be more guitar-based music and heavier music. And I think that some of the Wu-Tang clans, their lack of huge success is the edginess that they bring. Like there's an aggressiveness to Wu-Tang clan that's on par with punk and hardcore, like a like a weird minor key thing that I noticed, like especially on like like Tikal, the Method Man solo record, which is probably fair to call a Wu-Tang record. You could put them on the same bill as bad religion. And I think this is more more the reason that they should win. You know, a kid- Yeah, they they were, right? Am I wrong in saying, I believe they were on a couple like crossover records or- I I believe so. And And I think that like, you know, that was something that a suburban kid could hear and relate to because there was an edginess to it. So li- listening closely to the Wu-Tang Clan was like, I-, I saw like the heavier element, the heavier, more serious elements of grunge and hip hop coming together. And, you know, from watching the documentary, I think that was enormously conscious because, you know, I think when Jizza started, he was writing like kind of songs that were about partying and having a good time. And when they got more serious and more edgy, they became the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. absolutely. Well, you two are the absolute coolest, and the Wu-Tang Clan is the biggest no-hit wonder of the 90s. Yay! They did. They win. They're our big winners. Kristen and Ed, thank you so much for this. This was so fun. Let's let's leave today by telling me what is the most 90s thing you ever owned? (laughs) A pair of baby pink UFO pants, which may be known better by some people as Jinko pants, I think, but they were like the elephant wide <laughs> leg ones with long reflective straps on the side when I was like 14 and like definitely not taking E and going to a club, but I own them. Yep. <laughs> That's fantastic. I had a talk boy from Home Alone 2. Uh, in fact, I still have it. Yeah, I, I, to me, I don't know. That's probably like the most 90s thing that I remember like owning. And if I, tr- again, I go back to my mind, like if I had to explain this to my students, yeah, it's a tape recorder and you could slow the recording down. They would just look at me like, and you were excited. Yeah, I had pocket rockers. Do you remember also my uncle once bought me a pair of new york jets zumbas and gave it to me for christmas so (laughs) i was talking about the macarena today bicycle shorts rat tails 
<laughs> and how my one friend's older sister had new kids on the block dolls and they were like 12 inch dolls and we would go into her room and that was like fascinating this was awesome this yeah. was a lot of fun what an unbelievable treat to work with these two a huge thank you to my two guests for this episode kristen curtis from WXPN in Philadelphia 88.5 or streaming worldwide at XPN.org and also my boy Ed Clark and his musical project called Ampersand. You can check out both of my guests in the show notes, listen to Ed's music and check out Kristen Curtis on the Morning Drive show on XPN. Our summer of 90s continues with a band that transcended the decade as we take a deep dive into the deep cuts of Pearl Jam. On the next episode of Every Month Madness, I'll be welcoming Jackie from the Jersey Ghouls and my brother-in-law Ben to battle it out and decide our favorite deep cut Pearl Jam song. All coming at you next time. Until then, I'm Joe Costal. I'll be seeing you. The New York Times side Staying alive was no job At second hands Moms bounced on old men So then we moved to Shallon Land A young youth You're rocking the go-to Low goose Only way I begin to G-O